Well, good morning. Um, before we dive into today's passage and read it, I would like to begin by saying that for my family and I, it's a joy to have the opportunity to worship with you this morning. Um, over at Real Church, or Iglesia Real in Spanish, um, we've been witnesses to what the Lord has been doing in and through New City Fellowship, and uh, we're just grateful to God for uh, the opportunity and, uh, you know, that he has given us and that you have allowed us to be part of what God is doing here. And it's just amazing uh, to see, you know, God at work. So um, let's uh, open our Bibles in Mark chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, and, and I hope you do, open them in Mark chapter 9. And we're going to start in verse 2. The Bible says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for blessing us with another first day of the week, where we can gather here, Lord, as your church, to worship, to have fellowship, and just to be ministered by the power of your word. And Lord, as we continue studying the Gospel of Mark, I just pray that it can be your Holy Spirit transforming lives in this place, creating new lives in this place, Father, and that it may be your Word penetrating our souls. Father, we want to see you. We want to hear from you. We want Word of God, not Word of man. And I just pray that it may be your words through me, Lord, ministering our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. So last week, we took a shift in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so far in the first eight chapters, we saw that uh, Mark was showing us who Jesus is. Uh, through the miracles, through the wonders, through the signs. You know, Jesus has shown that he has power over the leper, power over uh, the lame, power over the blind. And he was doing all these wonders. He has fed 4,000, 5,000. I mean, Jesus has been doing so many great things. So Mark has shown us that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But then last week, once we reach verse 27 of chapter 8, there's a shift. Now, Mark is not only going to show us who he is, but we actually hear who he is from one of his disciples. And it all begins with a simple question. It may seem simple at first glance, 
but it's a very important question. Uh, Jesus, once they're in Caesarea Philippi, asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And, you know, some, uh, the different theories that the people had, uh, some, some thought that he was Elijah, that, you know, the last time that they had seen wonders like the ones Jesus was performing was in the time of Elijah. So they were thinking, well, or maybe this is the Elijah that the prophets were talking about that was to come. Uh, others thought that it was John the Baptist who had come back from the dead. Uh, and others thought that he was just any other prophet. But then Jesus confronts them with the, with the question that we all should be answering today in this place. Who do you say that I am? I would say that is the most important question one can ask ourselves. Who do we say that Jesus is? And then Peter, very boldly, I mean, he was the boldest out of the 12, just jumps in and says to Jesus, you are the Christ. And then Jesus tells him, okay, don't tell anyone, at least not yet. And then he began teaching them about his upcoming suffering and death on the cross. And then we see Peter telling him, Lord, Lord, may this never happen to you. And then the, 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 the Bible says that he rebuked, not Peter, he rebuked who? Satan. And again, it's not that Satan got inside of Peter and started uh, tempting Jesus, or, uh, but he was using Peter's emotions to serve as a stumbling block to Jesus' purposes uh, of coming here, dying on the cross, conquering sin, conquering death. So Peter, without knowing, he was being used uh, of Satan. And that's why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Um, and he rebukes him. And, late, and then Jesus, uh, he pretty much elaborates on, on the cost of the kingdom of heaven. And he says to his disciples, yes, I will die. And it will be my death, the one that will conquer sin and death. But you, there will be a cost for you also. And that's why we read when Peter tells them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And a parallel passage in another gospel says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself daily. Take up his cross daily and follow me. So taking up the cross of Christ is not a one-time event. It is something that us as followers of Jesus should be doing every day. The minute we wake up, the first thing we do is take up our cross and go about our days because we're followers of Christ. We're followers of Christ. And if someone might be thinking, well, I mean, that is just so hard for me. That is too high a cost to pay. Then the question that Jesus asks is, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I mean, sometimes we're living for a dot in an infinite line and we live our lives worried about that one dot 75 80 years maybe more years than that if we're blessed with a long life but then there's an, an eternity that comes after that and I mean do we want to live our lives for the, that infinite line in the presence of God or do we want to live our lives just for this one dot a life that no matter how good we may think it can get it will never be as good as what God has in store for each and every one of us. So the question is, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And then in chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus ends that discourse with one uh, promise, one prophecy. He says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Uh, I'm so, yeah, after they see the kingdom of God, after it has come with power. And today, we're going to see the fulfillment of that promise. So, again, in verse 2, chapter 9, 
The Bible says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Now, it says after six days. It was six days after the promise uh, of the kingdom of heaven that they were going to see. A group of them, at least, was going to see. And, and Jesus takes with him Peter, who, as we may recall from last week, just a week ago, what did he do? He confessed that Jesus was the what? The Christ. And he takes J James and John, who are brothers, the sons of Zebedee, only them three with him, and they go up to a high mountain. Now, many scholars believe that because they were in Caesarea Philippi, in that region, the highest mountain was Mount Hermon. So most likely, that was the mountain that they went up to. But in any case, the, Jesus leads them up that mountain. And what did he lead them to do? Um, Luke the parallel passage, again, of this uh, uh, passage here in Mark says that he led them up the mountain to pray. He led them up the mountain to pray. Luke uh, portrays Jesus as a man of prayer. If there was a man who was devoted to prayer, it was Jesus. I mean, Luke 5.16 says, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke 6.12 says, and in, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, all night he continued in prayer to God. Can you imagine that? Spending the whole night in prayer, just you and God alone in a desolate place, away from distractions, away from the noise, just you focused in him and praying to God. Can you imagine the relationship that the son had with the father? Well, that is the relationship that Jesus wants us to have with him. So Jesus was a man of prayer, and these two passages are just to mention a few, but the question that we must ask this morning is, are we spending enough time in prayer with God? When was the last time that you or I departed to a desolate place to spend some time just talking to God? The Bible encourages us to pray without ceasing, and Jesus was no doubt a great example of that. And so as he was praying, he was transfigured before them. And what does this mean? What, what does transfigure mean? Uh, in the original, transfigure means uh, a change into another form, a transformation, a change of countenance, a complete change. So this can read, Jesus transformed completely before them. He unveiled his glory before them. And how did, how did this transformation look like? Well, let's go to verse 3. It says, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no, uh, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now Luke says, Luke adds something in this verse. Uh, Luke says that the appearance of Jesus was altered, and Matthew adds that his face shone like the sun, and not only his clothes were intensely white, but they became white as light. And in scripture, light at times is uh, uh, how God manifests his presence to the people. Uh, just to give you a few examples, Psalms 104, 1 through 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Daniel 7, 9, when he was having the vision of the Ancient of Days, Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and in the Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And Paul, talking to Timothy about Jesus, says, Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him 
be honor and eternal dominion. How many of us can say amen? Amen. Amen. So God displays his presence. He manifests his presence to us, or he has done so through light. And here we see that Jesus transformed his, 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 uh, his self completely. And when we put the pieces together from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is what happened. He transformed before them. He, the, he, he changed the appearance of his face to the point where it was shining like the sun. His clothes became, he became white, so white as light. Now, can you imagine such a vision? And this is not something that they dreamed about. This is nothing that they heard about, as we will see later on today. This is something that they actually witnessed. I mean, they're at the top of the mountain, and Jesus, the Word of God, who, 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 who came in flesh, just pulled off the veil and displayed His glory to them. Now, can you imagine such a sight? This must have been an unforgettable experience for these men. And Jesus just transforms before them and two men appear to jesus is right and to jesus is left verse 4 says and there appeared to them elijah with moses and they were talking with jesus now why elijah and moses remember uh both all peter james and john they're jews so moses to them represented the mediator through whom they received the law in mount sinai and elijah could might as well represent all the prophets of the old testament so remember when jesus said i didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets but to fulfill the law and the prophets here peter has just uh confessed jesus you are the christ and P- peter and the six days later he's at the top of a mountain he transfigures before them elijah representing the prophets moses representing the law who everything that they had studied so far everything that they had been taught is in old testament scripture in their bible and it's like it's a confirmation for peter and for all present saying whom you see in front of you that is the christ that is whom the law and the prophets have been pointing to all along it's all been about him. Everything you read in the Pentateuch, everything you read in the books of poetry, everything you read in the, in, 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 in the prophets, everything you read in the historical books of the Old Testament, it was all about him all along. It was all along. This is him. This is him. So what more confirmation could Peter ask for? How, what more confirmation could John and James ask for than Elijah and Moses themselves? And what's best? All along they have had Moses and Elijah in a pedestal, but here they're both to the right and to the left, and right at the center is Jesus. He is the greater Moses. He is the greater Elijah. It's not about them. It's about him, the Son of God. So what, one more confirmation could they ask for? Now, here Mark says that they were talking with Jesus, but he doesn't tell us what they were talking about. But I know what they're talking about. And you may ask, how do I know? It's in the Bible. <laughs> the parallel passage in Luke says that they were talking about his departure. And you can write it down. You can look for it later. It's in Luke 9.31. Uh, they were talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And by departure, we're talking about his death. His death. Remember, everything that's taking place right now has to do with what Jesus has just begun to teach them six days ago. So they were talking with Jesus about, about his death. Luke also adds something that while this was happening, this is what he says, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep when they became fully awake. 
they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Now, this won't be the last time. Remember, why, they, why did they have gone up the high mountain to pray, right? This won't be the last time that they fall asleep on Jesus while he's praying. Uh, it, it, just six chapters uh, forward, when, when, when we get there, you'll see that when Jesus, the night of his arrest, takes these three men, Peter, James, and John, alone with him to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going to start praying to God, and what do you think they're going to be doing? They're going to be sleeping. They're going to need a, a, a shot of espresso like the ones you guys had last Sunday. I, I saw the, the video that that's what, that's what made up for the hour less of sleep. <laughs> well, they're going to need one of those as well because they're going to be falling asleep on Jesus. So this won't be the last time. But they were falling asleep. But the Bible says that when they were fully awake, they saw the two, the two men. And then Peter makes a suggestion. At such a marvelous sight, Peter, Peter says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Luke says that he said this at the, as the two men were departing. So what can we uh, interpret from this? That Peter saw he was sleeping. When he, when he was awake, he saw the two men as they were departing. And then he's like, Rabbi, no, no, no. Let's make one tent, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He didn't want them to go. He wanted to extend their stay as much as he could. Peter was thinking, this is what it must be all about. I mean, here's Elijah, here's Moses, here's Jesus. He has just unveiled his glory. We're here. We might as well just establish the kingdom once and for all. I mean, we might as well just see the kingdom realized. Why go back down there? Forget them. Let's stay up here. <laughs> Jesus was thinking about himself. He's like, no, no, no. We've got to stay here. We, I, I cannot leave this place. I cannot leave this place. And now, can you imagine, remember when we were talking about that eternal line that we're all going to live in the future? Now imagine us enjoying that sight for an eternity. Just in the presence of God. That's going to be amazing. I, I mean, I don't blame Peter for wanting to prolong their stay as much as he could. And of course, the Bible tells us why he said this. <laughs> if we go down to um, verse 6, it says that Peter said this, for he did not know what to say. For they were terrified. For they were terrified. And may, may I make a suggestion? I actually borrowed this suggestion from another preacher. Uh, whenever we have nothing to say, it's better for us not to say anything. I mean, because <laughs> Peter just starts making suggestions. And we see that the Bible says that as he's talking, he's going to be interrupted by God. God is going to be like, no, that's not what's going to happen. And we see that interruption in the following verses. When we get to verse 7, look what the Bible says. He says, and, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now this cloud that overshadows Peter, James, and John at this mountain is the Shekinah glory of God itself. And, 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 and again, they had already heard of this cloud before. Uh, in the Old Testament, we see God manifesting himself to the people of Israel through a cloud, through bright clouds. And just to share a few examples with you, Exodus 19, 16 through 18, when they, when, remember when the people of Israel were uh, freed from slavery in Egypt and they started their pilgrimage through the desert? Once they arrive at the foot of, of the mountain of Mount Sinai, God calls Moses up to a mountain, and this is what the Bible says. In the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. A similar reaction to the one that the apostles are having at the Mount of Transfiguration, right? 
Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So not only the, 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 the camp was trembling, but the whole mountain was trembling at the presence of God. There's no doubt that demons and Satan tremble at the sound of his name. Exodus 34, 5. After he had to get a second set of the tablets of stone, the Bible says the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So once again, we see the cloud, the Shekinah glory of God. And, and the book of Exodus couldn't end better. It ends with the construction of the tabernacle. And guess what happens in the end? The Bible says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So this is not the first time that God manifests himself to his people through a cloud. He has done it in the past. And later when Solomon built his temple, guess what happens again? The glory of God, the cloud, the Shekinah glory of God fills the temple. So imagine Peter and James and John maybe have been taught about what happened with their fathers in the past. They have read it in the Old Testament, in their Bibles, and now they're actually experiencing it. They're seeing the cloud. And again, what greater confirmation could this be for these men about who Jesus is? About who Jesus is. So God manifests his presence in a bright cloud that overshadowed them and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. But what about that? What, from all that he's saying, what should we pay close attention to or closer attention to? If he says that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again, listen to him. If he says that if anyone would go after him, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow him, listen to him. If he says whoever is ashamed of him and of his words in, the, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels, listen to him. That is what God is telling these men. Listen to him and to all that he has to say. So a second question that we must ask ourselves this morning is, are we listening to him? Are we denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily and follow him? Or are we settling and taking God's grace as cheap grace, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call it, cheap grace, no cost at all? Let me tell you something. Our salvation is no doubt free, but it's not cheap. It wasn't cheap. It cost the blood of God's only beloved son. So thank God that it's free, but it's not cheap. So are we, we should be asking ourselves, are we ashamed of him or of his words? No. Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And how many have believed it this morning? Let me ask again. Like Paul says, 
for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And how many believe it this morning? Yeah. Amen. <laughs> all right, all right. We all believe it today. Amen. So that means that there's power in the gospel if we have believed in it. If we, ha- if we have appropriated of the good news through faith, by grace alone, in Christ Jesus, then it is power for us and for all of the ones whom you were preaching to last Sunday at the beach. The message of the gospel is power. There's no other message that the Bible says that is powerful. Only the gospel. And there's only one gospel, Paul says to the Galatians. So that's the only message that we should be preaching. Now, how did the disciples react to such a sight, to the cloud that overshadowed them and covered them, and to the voice that they heard coming out of the cloud? Mark doesn't say it, but Matthew says that when the the disciples heard this, the voice that came out of the cloud, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Now, this is what you can expect when contemplating the glory of God. I mean, how can we be looking at the glory of God, contemplating the glory of God, and not react like that? If every man who has had the opportunity to just glance, just to get a glimpse of his glory, that has been the reaction. Let me give you a few examples. Isaiah, when he was called, the Bible says that he, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am not a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah thought, I'm dead, I'm dead. I have seen the throne of God. I have seen, I have heard God's voice with my own ears. I'm going to be consumed by the presence of God. Ezekiel, when he has a vision of the throne of God, he says that it was like the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud on the day of, of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness are all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, says Ezekiel, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. So we succumb to the majesty and the glory of God's presence, that it can be our only reaction. And John, by the way, who is one of the three, who's at the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus, will have a similar experience later in the island of Patmos, when he has a vision of the Son of Man descending in his second coming. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So that there can be no other reaction at the presence of God. I mean, just think of this. If the seraphim that live are around God's throne, they have six, six wings. The Bible says that with two, they, they cover their feet. With two, they fly. What do you think they do with the other set of wings? They cover their eyes. So if the seraphim that live in the presence of God have to cover their eyes, how much more do you think we won't just fall on our faces if we cannot even stare at the sun for more than five seconds. Now imagine if that is the power that the rays of the sun have over our eyes. Imagine the brightness, the light that Ezekiel was talking about that comes out of the presence of God. And that is what happened to the disciples. But then Matthew says that Jesus touched them and asked them to rise and told them, do not be afraid. Don't we have a caring and loving Savior? He just approached them and said, do not be afraid. And then we go to verse 8. It says, and suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Jesus only. And then they start their descent. 
they begin their descent. Verse 9 says, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, why would Jesus tell them not to tell no one what they had seen? It's a similar command to what, when, when, he, when Peter, remember when Peter confessed, you are the Christ, what did Jesus tell them? Do not tell anyone about this. And then as they're coming down from the mountain, after they have had such great experience in the presence of God and seen the glory of God, Jesus tells them, do not tell anyone what you have seen. This sounds a little contradictory, right? I mean, we should, more be t- we should be telling people what we have seen so that they can know this is the Son of God. I mean, we have seen it ourselves. We have witnessed. We heard the voice. We saw the cloud. This is him. Well, the, pr- the, the point is that the Jews were expecting a political Messiah. They were expecting a warrior like King David. They were, when, 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 when the Bible talks about restoring all things, they thought that the Messiah was going to overthrow Rome, was going to free them from Roman oppression and occupancy, and was going to re, uh, return to Israel the glory that they enjoyed during David's and Solomon's uh, time. But the truth is that the kingdom of God is not earthly in nature. Isn't that what he tells Pontius Pilate when he is in front of him? My kingdom is not from this earth. I mean, if it was, don't you think that I would have called a legion of angels to come and defend me? No. God's kingdom, the, 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 the kingdom that was being inaugurated through Jesus, is heavenly. And that's why they got this glimpse of heaven in the transfiguration. But they didn't understand this. But they would until Jesus died and resurrected, then it would make sense. Oh, okay, so he didn't come to defeat Rome. He came to defeat sin and death on the cross. That's what it was all about. That's why he's here. So it was going to make sense after. Right now, don't go. It's not time yet. But the time will come. The time will come. Even the disciples were puzzled about Jesus talking about resurrecting from the dead. Look at what verse 10 says. So they kept the matter to themselves, obedient, they kept, the matter, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They, they, they were puzzled. Okay, first, they're trying to put all the pieces together. I mean, we just saw Elijah, and the Bible does say something about Elijah coming uh, before the resurrection and before the establishment of the kingdom. But Elijah went away. Uh, we, don't, we didn't see him restoring anything. And here Jesus is talking about him resurrecting. Is he talking about all of, all of us resurrecting and Old Testament saints resurrect. What is he talking? They're trying to understand what Jesus is saying. And is that confusion that leads them in verse 11 to ask the following. And they asked them, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So in their, in their, in their, as they're puzzled, they're asking Jesus, okay, wait, you're talking about rising from the dead, but the scribes have been teaching that Elijah must come before that takes place. So what, what do you mean? So, I mean, with the exception of the Sadducees, most Jews believed in the resurrection from the dead. And the scribes, who were uh, doctors, interpreters, and teachers of the law, uh, mostly Pharisees, taught that before the resurrection and the establishment of the kingdom, Elijah must come. Now, what the scribes were teaching was not drawn from their rabbinic tradition. It actually came from Scripture. Uh, Malachi, which is the, 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 the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then the Old Testament closes with this verse. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before 
the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So that's what the scribes had been teaching all along. Before the day of the Lord, Elijah must come. So here is Jesus talking about resurrecting about and, and, and them not dying before the kingdom, before they see the kingdom of heaven coming in glory. But Elijah hasn't come. So they're asking him, how do we make sense of all of this? And then Jesus answers them. Verse 12, Jesus says to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. So Jesus does not contradict the teaching of the scribes, but he actually confirms their interpretation of Malachi. Jesus says, Elijah does come first. And Matthew adds, and he will restore all things. So Jesus is talking about Elijah's coming as a future event. He will come and he will restore all things. But then Jesus draws their attention back to the prophecies that don't deal with Elijah, but deal with his suffering, which is what he had been talking all along. He tells them, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they please. And after that, he tells them, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So, just as Elijah came and they did with him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So Jesus is telling them, Elijah did come already. And they didn't recognize him. And they treated him with contempt. And just in the same way that they treated him with contempt, they will treat me with contempt. And that's why I have been talking all along about me suffering and dying on the cross. And then, Jesus tells them, But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased that is written of him. So therefore, Elijah came, they did to him whatever they pleased, so will they do to me. And then Elijah will come and restore all things. So who was this Elijah that came? Jesus is saying, Elijah came, now I came, and then Elijah will come. Okay, so who is that first Elijah that already came? Matthew says, that the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. About John the Baptist. Now, you don't find that in Mark. You find it in Matthew. But in, in the Gospel of Luke, when the angel of the Lord is talking to Zechariah and is telling him of the birth of John the Baptist, look at what he says. As he will turn many of the children of Israel, speaking of John the Baptist, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Sound familiar? To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So who was that Elijah that came that they did not recognize? They treated him however they pleased and they were going to do the same thing to Jesus? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. So John the Baptist came in fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi. But the Jewish authorities did not recognize him and did to him whatever they pleased. As a matter of fact, they arrested him. They, and King Herod had him beheaded. So as they did to him, so will they do to me, says Jesus. Then Elijah will come again and restore all things, but not before I suffer, as it is written in me. So what was the purpose of the transfiguration? It served as a confirmation to the shift that has just taken place in the Gospel of Mark. The disciples must know that Jesus must suffer death at the hands of the Jewish elite, but the story does not end there, for they have glanced at the glory that will follow. The cross does not mean defeat, and they know that because based on what they saw and what they heard 
on the, Mount of, on the mountain of transfiguration. Robert Gundry says this, Several factors show here that the upcoming suffering of Jesus and his disciples does not negate the presence of God's powerful rule. First, the locale on the high mountain, the glistening of Jesus' clothes, the conversation with him of Elijah and Moses, the disciples' terror, the voice of God the Father declaring Jesus to be his beloved son and telling the disciples to listen to Jesus. All of this is proof that the death that is coming for Jesus is not defeat. Or should I say it is defeat? But Satan's defeat, sin's defeat, death defeat, all the enemies of God will have been defeated at the cross. So it is defeat, but not our Savior's defeat. He is our conqueror, and death has been killed. Now, once again, this experience must have been an unforgettable one for these disciples. So much so that many years later, look at Peter's retelling of what happened at that mountain. Peter writes in his second epistle, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with, him whom I, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter, many years ago, he was telling the, the, the church, you know what? The gospel that we have shared with you, everything that we have written about, it's not something that we heard. It's not mythology like the Greeks. It's not a tale. It's something that we actually saw. And Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, says that over 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. I mean, there was a Harvard law uh, professor and lawyer who said that if he had to prove Christ's uh, death and resurrection in court, he would win the case. He would win the case. Because he is, he, he, he investigates uh, uh, murders and, and, and killings, and that's what he did for a living. And, and we're talking about Harvard Law here. Uh, so we're not talking about, you know, with someone who is really prepared in that area. And he says, if I had to prove, just based on the evidence that I have, that, of, again, it's not being proved scientifically, but it's being proved through eyewitnesses. Isn't that how we declare if someone is guilty and, and, or, 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 or innocent, based on, 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 on the evidence and on the witnesses? Well, if I had to prove that, said this doctor, this, this, this lawyer, I would be able to prove it. And there would be no doubt that can contradict that Jesus was, in fact, born, dead, and he resurrected. And there are many eyewitnesses that saw this and have left that for us written in the pages of scripture so new city fellowship my prayer for you is that as you continue to study the gospel of mark you may grow ever more convinced of this that jesus christ is the beloved son of god amen. and that we all listen to him amen, amen. amen. let us pray <laughs> heavenly father we thank you lord for this time that you have allowed us to spend in your word. We thank you, Lord, because we're not following cleverly devised myths. We thank you, Lord, because our faith is not blind. We thank you, Lord, because you have left in the pages of Scripture the testimony of eyewitnesses who were on that mountain and got a chance to glimpse at your glory, Father, who were in the midst of that cloud and heard that voice declaring that Jesus 
is your beloved son, Father, your chosen one in whom you are well pleased and commands us to listen to him, Father. Lord, we thank you because every time we open the pages of Scripture, we also have an experience with you, an encounter with you. That we can grasp, even, even if it's just a little, how majestic, how glorious, all-powerful you are. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. May God bless you.